Uh, good morning, I'm Julie Coleman. I'm part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. Today we're going to be continuing our series on the life of Joseph in the later part of Genesis. Um, I want to start this morning by sharing about a very dark time in my life. Uh, I was in college, a junior, Gordon College, and I was in trouble. Uh, a couple of things, the perfect storm had kind of happened to me. I was in the midst of a terribly challenging, <laughs> challenging, that's such a positive word, didn't feel positive, but challenging uh, academic semester, and I was struggling. It was tough. We had one of those tough teachers that everybody was scared of, and I, I, I was scared to walk in the door. <laughs> um, and I had just broken up with a guy I thought I was going to marry, and so that was very hard for me. And it was just, I was, I was up to my ears and responsibilities. I was an RA, and things weren't going well on my floor, and it just was a very dark time, and I started thinking about in that time that I wanted to quit. I wanted to leave. I was tired of being in pain, and so on Sunday night, uh, when I usually called my parents, back then you called once a week, and uh, I called them up and I told them that I was going to be withdrawing and coming home. So my father, who understood the pain I was in as I sobbed through my message to them, and he said, Julie, okay, you can quit. It's your, it's your choice. But I want to ask you just one thing you'll do for me. And I said, okay. And he said, will you just go one more week? One week, seven days. Call us next Sunday, and we'll talk about it. I thought, okay, well, I can do a week. So, okay. So I got through the week, had a little bit of success, but not much, and called my parents again. And I said, nope, not good enough. I'm coming home. And my dad said, yeah, we'll come get you. We'll come get you. But we... We can't do it for another week. Can you, can you last seven more days? Well, yes, I can do seven more days. Okay, we'll, we'll talk to you next Sunday. And as you can guess, that's how the whole semester went. <laughs> one more week, one more week. And so uh, very slowly, I moved out of that tunnel toward the light. And by the way, I did finish school. You'll be happy to know. But what happens when you're in the tunnel and you can't see the light, what happens when despair is so overwhelming and things just keep getting worse instead of better? As you look ahead and there's no way that you can see how this can end well. Have you ever been there? You might be there right now. What do you do when you've lost all hope? Well, as we continue our story through Joseph's life today, we're going to come to a place where Joseph hit rock bottom. No light in his tunnel, just darkness. And what we'll discover today will be something that will help you in your times of despair. They helped me already, whether you're currently struggling, struggling or waiting for the next thing to happen, because they do. Last week, as we left off, Joseph was falsely accused of attempted rape by his master Potiphar's wife. And if you were a slave in ancient Egypt while they had a court system, it wasn't for slaves. There was no trial. One accusation could land you in jail for the rest of your life. No hope of release. But the narrator gives us just a hint of light that we can see, and I'm not sure if Joseph did, but this is what he says. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The jailer ends up putting Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners with full responsibility for what happened in that prison. And the narrator tells us again, 
But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Well, that's where we left off last week. So now we're going to take a look at Genesis 40, 1 to 8. Then it came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream, and each dream with his own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, we've had a dream, and there's no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the richness that's in it. We thank you for the truth that we can glean every time we opened its pages. Lord, we just ask now that with your Holy Spirit, you would use your word in our hearts to encourage us and to convict us and to make us grow and mature and be fruit-bearing people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, both of these men that came into the prison have been very high positions in the king's court. Egyptian texts out of the Bible, from, uh, not the Bible, but other Egyptian texts, say that those that were serving in those capacities were very wealthy and they were very influential. And you have to think, yes, because the Pharaoh was trusting them literally with his life because there was always a fear of being poisoned. So um, they actually wielded political influence as well. As well. So they're sent to, ch- to prison to await their sentencing. Well, the cupbearer, he tells his dream first. There was a vine with three branches. They budded, they produced grapes, and he squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, which he put into Pharaoh's hand. Joseph told him that the three branches were three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will restore you to your former position. Good news, right? But Joseph is so sure of what he just has said, God has given him to say, that he asked the cupbearer to return the favor. And this is what he says. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you. And please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. Now, after seeing the happy ending, the baker is now willing to tell Joseph his dream. He had three baskets on his head. In the top basket, there were all kinds of baked goods, but birds were eating them right out of the basket. So Joseph tells him that their three baskets also stand for three days until the Pharaoh would release him also. But his ending, not so happy. He would be convicted for his crime and be impaled on a pole where carrion birds would pick at his corpse. Now, I, I was doing some research and found that when that, that death being impaled on a pole, like it says literally in the Hebrew, is actually the only the punishment for murder. So that's what he was being charged with, probably. And of course, since the interpretations were from the Lord, every detail came true. The cupbearer was restored, the baker was executed, 
But then in a simple sentence, all hope for Joseph that he held in his heart for that dies. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. How devastated was Joseph? Well, the vocabulary he uses, he spoke to the cupbearer, really is revealing. He said this, and you saw it, I have done nothing that they should have put me into a dungeon. Now, David pointed out last week, so far in the story, the narrator has referred to the jail several times, and he calls it the house of the captain of the bodyguard. The label really sounds like it's like a minimum security kind of prison, a white-collar kind of place. But Joseph doesn't use that word. He uses the word dungeon. So I looked that word up. Does that have significance? And I was surprised to see the literal meaning of that word. Ready for this? Pit, cistern, or well. Now, where have we seen that before? Remember in chapter 37, when Joseph's brothers threw him into an empty well as they plotted to kill him? It's the same word. Now, I want to just for a minute, if Joseph was kind of thinking of it in this way, let's take a look at these two scenarios, the first cistern versus the second cistern or dungeon. The first cistern, he was betrayed by his brothers. The second cistern, he was betrayed by a fellow prisoner who forgot about him when he had promised not to. The first cistern, Joseph was sold into a life of slavery, and the second cistern, he was thrown into a jail. First cistern, helpless to help himself, and he was as well in the second. And in both cases, he had done nothing wrong to deserve what he was in. He had a hope of Reuben's intervention, who told him, don't kill him, um, and then he had hoped to get him out, although I'm not sure Joseph knew that. But now he has the hope of cupbearer invention, intervention, but both of those turned out not to happen. He loses position, uh, the position of being the most valued son when his brother sell him into slavery, and now in the second sister in this um, dungeon that he's referring to, he loses the position of a most valued slave. He works to do his best where he has landed in both of those cases, and in the end, there's no hope of freedom for either of them. Now, isn't that something? That both of these things were exactly, or very similar, in, in their um, things that had happened to Joseph. So you can, when you lay it out, you can see how Joseph would have called the jail a cistern because the circumstances were so very much the same. But at the second, same time, this second time, was much worse. I hope you don't mind my attempts at a chart. (laughs) But I just wanted to show you, he starts off as the favored son. He takes a nosedive when his brothers sell him into slavery. But then he rises to the occasion, and things are going well. He's being in charge of Potiphar's household. He's doing all he can. He's being rewarded and recognized. And then takes a nosedive when Potiphar's wife accuses him, and he goes to prison. But then comes up. And you can see each time when he comes up, it's a little lower. Now he's a prisoner, but he's the best prisoner, and he gets to be in charge. And that goes for a while, and then he has this, and then he's, he's talking to people who have to do with Pharaoh, which is his only hope of getting out of there, and so he's starting to feel hope. The cupbearer, he interprets his dreams, and then the cupbearer forgets him. Lowest of the low. 
That's that tunnel I was talking about. No light, just darkness. We have this idea that as we read the story, oh, this is how God's going to get him out. Cupbearer's going to tell him he's going to go to Pharaoh, and we're excited, and we're reading along, and boom, somebody hits a, a pin in a balloon, and we back to no hope. Proverbs tells us this. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. There's no doubt that this second round of being crushed really has brought Joseph to rock bottom. The light of his tunnel has been extinguished for him, and now Joseph was left for two years without the slightest indication that a rescue was on the way. Not a glimmer of light to break up that darkness. So, then we begin chapter 41. Finally, after two years of silence, God is on the move. He gives Pharaoh himself a dream, two dreams, in fact, which are so remarkably similar, Pharaoh knows he needs to get an interpretation. And in the ancient Near East, royal dreams were believed to indicate that a special bond was happening between God and the king. So it was important to Pharaoh. He needed to know what the dreams meant. His wise men, magicians, couldn't help him. So when the cupbearer sees the desperation in Pharaoh, he knows he can solve it. Joseph. So we're going to pick up there in uh, verse 9 of chapter 41. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. That word offenses is actually sin. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night, and he and I, and each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, a young Hebrew youth was with us there, and a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one, he interpreted according to his own dream, and just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Pharaoh calls for Joseph. And when Pharaoh snaps his fingers, you move. So they rush over to the, the house of the bodyguard and tell Joseph, get cleaned up, here's some clothes, let's go. Pharaoh wants to see you. So very hurriedly, they got things ready, and Joseph appeared before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says this to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I've heard it said about you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh tells him the dreams, which are strikingly similar to each other. The first dream was seven fat cows coming up out of the Nile, and the Nile, of course, is the source of life and um, power and fertility for the empire of Egypt, and are eaten by seven skinny cows, the likes of which Pharaoh has never seen. Then he had a second dream. Seven full ears of wheat sprout on a single sprout, which is a, that's a, a sign of um, abundance. Then seven more ears, scorched by the east wind, which came off of the Sahara Desert, straight off and sprout out and swallow the seven good ears. Now Joseph gives the interpretation. Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told Pharaoh what he's about to do. The first seven are, are years of abundance, but seven years of famine will follow. 
it will ravage the land. And you keep seeing the word severe, severe, severe the whole time he's explaining this to Pharaoh. And God repeated the message twice because the matter is already determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. So find someone who will coordinate overseers of the land and store one-fifth of the abundance in preparation each year for the famine years and then set guards to it. So Pharaoh and his servants, they see the wisdom in Joseph's plan. So they can see that Joseph's God is worth listening to. So Pharaoh tells Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. I have set you over the land of Egypt. And I was reading this morning what a vizier does. One of the things he does is he's like a Supreme Court judge. When a, a local uh, jury can't, or not jury, but a local council can't decide on an issue and, or somebody wants to bring it to a higher authority, it goes to the vizier. So Joseph went for, from being uh, unjustly accused to someone who decides other cases. That's pretty awesome. I love the irony in that. Pharaoh gives Joseph a new name. And I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce this. I forgot to look up the pronunciation. But it's something like Zephath Penea, which in Egyptian probably meant, they think, God speaks and lives. How would you like that for a, last, or for a first and last name? He gives Joseph his signet ring, which made him able to be a royal seal bearer, giving him authority to validate documents in the king's name. He clothes him in a garment fitting for his new position, and he puts gold necklaces around his neck, as every ruler should have. When Joseph rode through the streets, a guard went before his carriage and yelled, Bow the knee! He even gives Joseph a wife, and his wife wasn't just any girl. She was the daughter of the high priest at An. And the high priest at An held the title of the greatest of seers. He was a very, very powerful man. And that's who he gave Joseph as a wife. So she married into royalty, basically. So the transformation in his circumstances was absolutely complete in a few head-spinning days. So we can learn a lot from Joseph's example by being loyal to God, no matter how grim our circumstances. But to make that our takeaway, we'd be starting at the wrong end of what this passage is really teaching us. The Bible is not written about people, although there are plenty of people in there, both good and bad examples. But the Bible is meant to reveal God to us. So that's what we need to be looking for. And we can learn about God by knowing what Joseph believed in him. What did Joseph know about God? Well, he knew, first of all, that God's faithfulness extends to each generation. In Joseph's family history, God did what he promised. He started with Abraham. I will make you into a great nation, and you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And with every subsequent generation, he reiterated that promise to the next person in line. He had a firm purpose for his plan and plan for that family, and he would finish what he started. As the psalm says, For the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. They say hindsight's 20 tonny. We can look at the story and say, well, it was only two years and then God moved. It's not that long. But first of all, uh, two years is long. And secondly, when Joseph was in it, there was no end in sight. He didn't know it was going to end in two years. 
This could have been until he was 60, 70, 80 years old. He knew the end, though, because of his dream, that somehow his family would be bowing down to him. But when and how would that happen? But Joseph's loyalty didn't falter because he trusted God to do what he said. That's the first thing. The second thing God, Joseph knew about God was that God never left him. So many times in Joseph's story, we read that God was with Joseph. And even in these few chapters, from the time he arrived into Egypt, the narrator constantly reminds us of God's presence and kindness. In his entire time in Egypt, the narrator, or Joseph, reminds us that no less than 13 times, and there may be some I missed, that God was there and at work in his circumstances. We know that a fact to be God for everyone, because in Psalm 139, it says we can't get away from his presence. You've enclosed me behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. And the passage that we just read tells us more about that idea. God wasn't just there but he was showing kindness. The Hebrew word has said is, uh, means to act with love and loyalty to help a covenant par- partner in his need. Back in 3210, during Joseph's time, his own father, jo- Je- not, excuse me, Jacob's time, Joseph's father, he attributed his success, uh, being, becoming a rich man under a corrupt uh, uncle who was trying to steal everything he had to God's has said, God's kindness. Joseph knew his father's story, and now he saw God's has said toward him. The third thing that Joseph knew from his forefathers is that God can do anything. He demonstrated that power uh, with Abraham's nephew in Sodom when fire was rained down upon the city, two cities and swept away. He gave Sarah and Abraham a son in their old age. He protected Sarah when she was taken into a king's harem. He gave Abraham a victory over a huge army. Five kings had gotten together, raided the town that Lot was in, carried him and all his possessions away. Abraham went with his little band of people and got him back. That was God. Jacob, living in a foreign land, working for that unscrupulous uncle, and God made him a rich man. Joseph knew all those stories, so they knew, knew this to be true about God. He's not only worked in Joseph's life, guarding, but he's guarding him and he's blessing him in kindness. He was also at work in a mighty empire, which we'll see later on in the story, which eventually would be brought to its knees by God's strong hand. In Jeremiah, God says this, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh, is anything too difficult for me. Joseph knew, as he did for his forefathers, that God would come through. And he really was actually coming through all along. He just couldn't see it. But the best part of the story, the part of the story that made me almost fall off my chair as I was studying, was at the very end of the section. When Joseph names his two sons, born to him and his wife, he gave them not Egyptian names, but Hebrew names. The first was Manasseh, and he named him that, for God has made me forget all my trouble 
and all of my father's household. The trouble Joseph went through on the way to God exalting him was worth it. That's what he's saying. Now, there's things we go through that are definitely worth the pain getting there. One that comes to mind right away, because I'm a woman, is labor. We all have our labor stories. I had a couple of friends that gave me some that I'll never forget. <laughs> One of my friends was uh, you know, delivering, I forget, her fourth or fifth child, and her husband, being the you know, coach that he was supposed to be, was leaning over and he's saying, breathe, breathe, breathe. And she got so aggravated with him telling her to breathe, she finally grabbed him and said, you breathe, I'm in labor. <laughs> oh, so funny. And then I have another friend who was so, uh, you know, pent up with the pain and labor and everything. She grabbed her husband's hand, and the next time a contraction came along, she put her hand in his mouth and she bit down hard. She broke the skin. He actually had teeth marks in his hand from that. He came home and showed us. We were like, oh my gosh. Of course, we never let her forget that one either. But the funny thing about labor is this. Eventually, you do forget. In time, it all becomes kind of distant, fuzzy memory. But actually, the, the, uh, the memory of the pain starts to fade the minute they put that baby in your arms. The reward is worth having to get there. And Joseph obviously felt that way about what he'd been through. Then he had a second son. And he named him Ephraim. And the meaning for that was, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The Hebrew word translated fruitful is also translated grow or increase. God didn't waste one minute of Joseph's suffering. He used it all to prepare him, to develop in him what would be needed to run an empire. So what? How does this story impact me today in the here and now? Well, you may be in a land of affliction yourself. Maybe you've been hurt or disrespected. Maybe you've had to take the blame for something that wasn't your fault. Maybe you suffered a great loss. Maybe your affliction is a big disappointment and it's left you heartsick. Or maybe you're hurting for someone else someone you love who's been hurt or damaged. There are times we find ourselves overwhelmed with trouble. We can't imagine how God can fix it all. There's no way out. We're in our own land of affliction. Joseph experienced affliction for 13 years, long years, before God exalted him. Sometimes we only have a brief stay in the land of affliction, but more often, like Joseph, God has to stay a while, sometimes a long while. But we know what Joseph knew about God. As we suffer, we know it's not because he's reneging on a promise, because we know, like Joseph, his faithfulness extends to each generation. We know what we're going through is not because he's abandoned us, because we know he will never leave us, just like Joseph. And most certainly, we know this isn't because God can't fix it, because God can do anything. He's the same God as he was for Joseph and his forefathers, and just like Joseph, someday we will look back on it all and glory in his deliverance. We'll say this, 
God made me forget. It's a promise found in 2 Corinthians, where Paul says, Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison to what we have suffered. So in closing, my dad told me one year when we were up visiting in Connecticut that he had found a new idea he was going to try on his apple trees. He was going to nail copper nails into the trunk. And that supposedly would shock the tree and would, give, uh, and would make the tree, because it was shocked and it was thinking it was dying, produce more fruit. So I don't know if he ever did it. But this week I did a little research, just curious, does that work or not? And I found out, it's an old wives' tale, <laughs> the copper does nothing. But I did discover, while I was looking, a related truth, that if a tree is over-fertilized, it will expend all its energy on growing wood and won't produce any blossoms. And no blossoms means no fruit. Trees need the stresses in nature to remain fruit-bearing. And Joseph saw that in his own life. His affliction produced a result in him. That Hebrew word translated fruitful, also grow or increase. God will use our stressors, use our struggles to make us fruitful, to make us grow, and to increase our effectiveness while in the land of our affliction. While in the land of our affliction. And I think I need to add that a key to Joseph's tremendous growth was in his response to his circumstances, to his suffering. He didn't rant or rave. He didn't go on a prisoner hunger strike. He didn't respond in anger, as far as, at least as far as we are told. Instead, he accepted the affliction as part of the plan. A plan he was willing to stake his life on. He submitted himself to the God he trusted. Now, when I'm in the land of affliction, I'm so busy scheming my way out of the problem or telling God how he should fix it, I'm not even listening to him. But it's only when we settle down, accept where he has us, and resolve to obey him through it, does he begin to show us things, things about him, things we need to know. And that's when we mature a bit more. And that's when we start to see his fruit in our lives. Because when we submit to the Spirit, he produces fruit in us. Fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We all hate the land of affliction. We all hate pain. But God's word tells us it's a necessary thing for our growth because he is too kind to leave us as we are. His purpose for us is to make us fruit bearers, which in turn will make us our lives imminently richer and more satisfying as a result. Someday, all the pain and affliction will be a very distant memory, fading into the light of the glory that he'll give us. And that's a promise we can stake our life on.